The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. How is your work life going? Business? Home? Social? How about your health? Could you make some changes? Of course you could, but how and where to start? This is Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. In this program, we'll help you identify and make the changes in your life that need to be made. And by doing so, increase your potential for success. And now, here's your host, Hemda Mizrahi. Welcome to Turn the Page. I'm Hemda Mizrahi. If you're tuning into this episode, hopefully you're actively exploring how you can improve your digestive health. A lot can be accomplished through the choices you make around food and nutrition. Specifically, we'll focus on how you and your loved ones can manage inflammatory bowel disease, primarily ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease, through your diet. According to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota, inflammatory bowel disease involves chronic inflammation of all or part of your digestive tract. It affects over 5 million people worldwide, and as you may know from personal experience, It can be debilitating and lead to life-threatening complications. Fortunately, many have succeeded in significantly enhancing their health through nutritional changes. Joining me to provide her expertise on this topic is registered dietitian nutritionist Colleen Webb. Colleen specializes in providing personalized nutrition education to empower people with gastrointestinal conditions to improve their quality of life. She captures the latest nutrition news in her blog, eatforyears.com, which has a special focus on gastrointestinal health. Galine, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Hemda, for having me. So I'm really excited to talk about this topic, and again, it comes back to the impact that we can all have on our own health through the choices that we make. And you mentioned that you enjoy browsing the local farmer's market for fresh produce produce to make home-cooked meals. So I'm curious about how an activity like that ties in with the kind of advice that you might give to those who have gastrointestinal conditions. So Hamda, I'm not sure that I could be very good at my job if I wasn't a healthy Mm -hmm. eater myself. I can really appreciate on a regular basis how eating real food makes me feel. And although I do spend a lot of my time telling patients what they should be eating, I don't know how I would be able to tell them how they should do it without doing it on my own. And also, it really helps provide me with the energy I need to really engage with patients. Mm -hmm. I would think, too, essentially, you're talking about a lifestyle because the recommendations that you give really aren't about a one-time thing that's going to correct the situation. And that's what makes it challenging for people that... Sometimes we have certain attachments to foods and that can create emotional, an emotional response. And if you make this experience also fun and enjoyable, that it's exploratory, there's an adventure around it, you wind up discovering things that you never ate before. 
I completely agree with you. You know, sometimes it's very challenging, let's say, for a patient who might have to go gluten-free, and maybe they truly have celiac and they have to go gluten-free, and then they start discovering all of the amazing naturally gluten-free whole grains that exist, and we see that quite frequently, and, and, and people tend to take it on as a new hobby, and it's a lot of fun because not only are they really helping themselves, but they tend to help their families, too. Mm-hmm. Right, so that's an interesting facet that can also be very uplifting for people that when they have others in their family learning through them and becoming healthier, it's a really elevating experience. Absolutely. And it's really empowering for the patients as well, I think, because when they do eat a certain way and they just feel better, it's not just helping their gastrointestinal tract, it's helping to prevent the risk of so many different chronic diseases. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have this overlapping benefit you come in to address some issues, some symptoms that a person might be having, and you wind up actually extending the health benefits in other areas. Exactly. So let's talk about this connection between nutrition and inflammatory bowel disease. What are, what are, what are the most prominent points that you think are really important to bring out around this? I think one of the first things that we just need to mention is what an incredibly important role nutrition plays in managing inflammatory bowel disease. Unfortunately, nutrition's role is one that is often dismissed or undervalued and I think very misunderstood. And yet there are so many different ways that food and nutrition can affect the uh, the treatment and the therapy for inflammatory bowel disease. And one of the most obvious is just how can you be healthy if you're malnourished? Malnutrition it hurts the whole immune system and it, it damages the bowel. And so it's really tough to get well or even for medications to work as well as they possibly can if, if somebody is malnourished. I think that's probably one of the most obvious points right there. So essentially this means that we may think that we're eating in a healthy way. And at the same time, we need to do some investigative work to be able to understand if we have the nutrition that we need. Right, and it certainly is a little bit different for everyone, but I think the first step is just recognizing that we do have to start asking people with inflammatory bowel disease, what are they eating? Because a patient cannot fully be addressed, their needs really cannot fully be addressed without taking into account what are they eating and how is food making them feel and what are their barriers around eating certain foods. And uh, too often, these patients are unfortunately told that what they eat doesn't matter. Or, uh, for example, I had this this one patient uh, who was told never to eat anything green and, and only eat white foods. So he was eating cauliflower but not broccoli. Or others might be told not to eat any fruits or vegetables. And I just can't think of how anyone's ever going to feel well if they're not eating any fruits or vegetables. Mm-hmm. So in these protocols, these treatment protocols that people are receiving... What's the reason that there are these misconceptions about nutrition? I think a lot of it is that we don't have any gold standard randomized control trials that show that certain foods or nutrients cause or cure inflammatory bowel disease. And the truth is we don't have any that show that they don't. The research has not been done, but we have plenty of association studies to show strong links between certain foods and dietary patterns and both the development of inflammatory bowel disease and also uh, the impacting the severity of their condition. You talked about being malnourished. 
And I'm guessing that you've come across patients who you would consider to be malnourished and they didn't consider themselves to be malnourished. So I'd love for you to give an example of a situation that you experienced with a patient and the steps that you took and what some of those outcomes were. So I think one thing to really recognize, too, with inflammatory bowel disease, I mean, it, it is an inflammatory condition. Um, and because of that, people can lose all kinds of necessary nutrients. Um, they might also have trouble absorbing certain nutrients. And so many patients aren't even sure what part of their gastrointestinal tract is affected. So they don't even consider that they might be mal, mal, uh, malabsorbing or maldigesting certain nutrients. But I can think of a number of different examples. It's, I'll be honest, it's even tough to give one specific example here um, because we see it so frequently of people who feel like food has nothing to do with their disease and then we run the blood work, they have a, numerous nutrient deficiencies, they are having different bone fractures due to osteoporosis, they are so fatigued going upstairs because of iron deficiency and these are all examples of them being malnourished but they never think of them that way. And so when we correct those through appropriate supplements and appropriate diet, they're able to have more of a regular life, more of a normal routine, walk up the stairs without getting fatigued, that kind of thing. Right. So for, for someone who doesn't have IBD, the ty- that type of nutritional intake, maybe that someone might be coming into you and saying, this is my nutritional intake, might be fine. But depending on where in the gastrointestinal tract you have these, the symptoms, the inflammation, they might not be absorbing certain nutrients. So they're their situation is going to be different and they need to make sure that they compensate for what's not being absorbed. Right. And malabsorbing is just one of the reasons why people with IBD are at a greater risk for malnutrition. Um, If somebody's losing blood in the case of ulcerative colitis, then they're losing iron and their whole iron status should be worked up. If they are on certain medications, which are commonly used in patients with IBD, like prednisone, for example, that can inhibit the absorption of calcium. Um, if somebody is just, they're so confused about what to eat, so they're going online and finding all of this conflicting information, then they might end up overly restricting their diet. And then they're, of course, not able to consume their needs. So People with IBD certainly have more challenges than, than somebody with a, a normal functioning gut. And that really, I think, is fair to say for most people with gastrointestinal issues. Right. I can see when you use the word personalized to describe the types of nutrition plans that you come up with, that there are so many specifics that vary even amongst people who have IBD. Exactly. So not only does just what part of their gut is affected make a big difference, but then we need to consider things like individual food intolerances, uh, malabsorptions, food sensitivities, all kinds of, of things that really do affect these people more so than, than the general population. Colleen, you talk about malabsorption. So if someone's in a situation where they're having a hard time absorbing certain nutrients, what do you do in that situation to help their body be able to absorb those nutrients? So it depends on what sort of nutrients are being malabsorbed. In some cases, we are able to provide weight, provide these nutrients while bypassing the gastrointestinal tract. So for example, people with Crohn's disease of the ileum where they have a harder time absorbing vitamin B12, then they can speak with their physician about vitamin B12 injections. They also can try what's called sublingual vitamin B12, where they put it under the tongue and bypass the GI tract. 
We can also give iron infusions. So all kinds of things to talk to the physician about. As far as food goes, in some cases, it's just eating more of the foods that contain those nutrients because usually there's some level of absorption. Um, so if they consume more of these certain nutrients, then they're more likely to absorb some of these foods or excuse me, some of these nutrients. What kind of testing do you do? So if, if you take us through the life cycle of a patient and they come in to see you and what kind of evaluation you do and then the steps you might take afterwards, that would be helpful. So by the time they've seen me, hopefully they have had the appropriate workup, whatever scopes they need. And I always like to first sit with the patient and really find out and, and make sure that they're aware, aware of what part of their GI tract is affected. And then when we know that, I talk with them about the various nutrients that they specifically have to be concerned about. And we also usually have a really nice blood work. Um, if, they, if they haven't, then I will make recommendations for what bloods, what labs I would really like to see. And we review those. And then I'll always get a very thorough diet recall from them. And in even a, a better case scenario, they'll provide me with a nice thorough food diary. And we spend a lot of time looking at what they're eating and then comparing it to the at least the dietary patterns that we see are most beneficial for people with inflammatory bowel disease. So essentially, you take a look at the nutrition that a person is taking in. You take a look at blood work, which shows their levels of vitamins and other essential nutrients. And you also mentioned food sensitivities. So there are some pretty decent food sensitivity tests out there. One of the ones that I like to use frequently is called a mediator release test. And now I'm based in New York State. It makes it a little more challenging for our patients to have this test performed. Um, so they do have to go to New Jersey for that blood work. And when I first heard about mediator release test, Hemda, I honestly, I thought it was a little bit out there. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a little bit crazy. And I just couldn't believe that all these people were feeling so much better. And after a few years, I finally started sending some of our patients out to therapists who do perform this testing. And my patients were coming back to me and they were feeling better. And so I ended up becoming certified and working with more of our patients with with inflammatory bowel disease and, and also with a lot of GI issues that maybe don't have a diagnosis. And I've really been seeing some tremendous results. Uh, one example of a, a young man who had been on a one of these immunosuppressing medications, he had been feeling okay, came off the medication, wanted to stay off the medication, and, uh, and he be he relapsed, he flared, and he did not want to go back on this Remicade. And the doctor said, all right, well, you get one month with Colleen. If you can do something about it, great. Mm -hmm. And we had him undergo the media release test. And then I took those results, like so many uh, leap therapists do, and created a very personalized nutrition plan. And he ended up, he, he stopped bleeding in just a few days, and he has since been in remission. So it doesn't always work, but, but sometimes it does, and, and certainly um, a path worth exploring for people who can afford it uh, and for people who don't mind very strict elimination diets. So we have just a couple of minutes left before we go to commercial. It would be really helpful for those who actually have maybe heard of food sensitivity testing but haven't experienced it or investigated, if you could just explain what exactly is involved. Sure. So it's just a blood test. And then the blood is paired with these different antigens from 120 different foods and 30 food chemicals. And the 
results are basically uh, presented in a level of reactivity, so a low reactive, moderately reactive, and a very highly high reactive to these foods. So with food sensitivities, what can happen is, I mean, you can be sensitive to anything, and, and when these different antigens from the food are presented to the immune system, the immune system might respond. And so we are able to figure out how much is your immune system responding so that we can then create an elimination diet to allow the immune system to just calm down and rest. Right, so it's that whole concept that we're reading a lot, reading about a lot in health news nowadays, which is so much of our immune health is around our gut, and if you're sensitive to certain foods, that that could really have an impact on your immune system. Sure, about eighty percent of our immune system or so is in our gut. Definitely makes a big difference what we eat. Right, and that's distinct from food allergies. So you may not have such an overt reaction to a sensitivity. And what what I found was that. I was sensitive to a lot of foods that I tend to eat a lot of. Do you find that that frequently the case? That certainly does happen. Uh, I think that if you have a really impaired bowel, too, um, the more you eat a certain food, the more likely you're you're also going to develop a food sensitivity. And I think, too, there are certain foods that people just assume are safe foods. And so they just regularly eat those foods. But meanwhile, they're not feeling well because they happen to have a sensitivity. So what the the testing allows us to do is to create a very personalized anti-inflammatory diet. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you eliminate those foods from your diet, and then eventually you can reintegrate them. Right. Yep. Most, most of the time people end up challenging both the untested foods and the high reactive, and in many, in many cases they, they do fine because a healthy gut can, can really handle that sort of stuff. So that at least people can feel a little bit better, right? That if they're giving up some things that they really enjoy, that eventually they might be able to bring them back. Right. And they'll feel so much better when they do. One quick question Regarding the food sensitivity testing, if, if you're going to a physician who doesn't offer that, what are ways, since we're talking to people all over the globe, that someone can find an opportunity to do that type of testing? First, I suppose that they could visit the website, nowleap.com, uh, and that should be able to help direct them to therapists, and people have been doing this for a long time. And I do believe outside of the United States that this is a pretty popular test. So it's now leap N O W L E A P. That's correct. Fabulous. We're going to go to a brief commercial. When we come back, Colleen will talk about the differences between a healthy diet for the general population compared to one that is healthy for those with IBD. Stay tuned also to hear the story of a patient who cleaned up her diet and was able to get off of meds. We'll be right back. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. 
Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. We're back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, speaking with registered dietitian nutritionist Colleen Webb. Colleen talked about the ways that food and nutrition help to manage inflammatory bowel disease. In this segment, we'll explore the difference between a diet that's healthy for the general population and one that's healthy for people who have IBD. So Colleen, how would you describe a diet that's healthy in general, so to speak? Well, I'm so happy you asked because mm-hmm. I think that there is just so much confusion about healthy eating. Uh, I mean, the media gets hold of one journal article and blows it out of proportion. And then it's really easy for the rest of us to just get completely distracted uh, from what we already know about healthy eating. And so we have um, plenty of research and including what's coming out of the blue zones, which are these five regions where people are living the longest and healthiest lives where they're not dying from chronic disease. You know, they're dying in their sleep very peacefully. And we've learned how these people eat and, and not down to the specific foods, for, but, but certainly these dietary patterns. And so people who eat real food, and by real food, I mean food that we have not overly processed in the laboratory. So, for example, um, a sweet potato would be a real food. A sweet potato chip would not be. And people who eat a variety of of mostly plant foods, lots of fruits and vegetables and and beans and legumes and nuts and seeds and whole grains. And then with or without everything else, as far as the animal proteins um, and, uh, and, and certainly not too much of the highly processed foods, maybe even you don't even eat the highly processed foods. I mean, you won't go to a blue zone and find anything really in a package with all these unrecognizable additives. So it's pretty much what Michael Pollan says, and, and in, in a way, I, you know, it's funny to even reference a journalist here, but he, he nailed it with the eat real food and, and mostly plant foods and not too much of it. So I think that, Hemda, we, we do know what healthy eating is. We don't necessarily want to acknowledge it. We want to keep getting distracted, but it's, it's real, real food and, and mostly plant foods. When you say additives, can you share a little bit more about what you mean, some examples? Sure. So a lot of the unrecognizable ingredients, if you pick up, let's say, a, a granola bar and it has about 20 different ingredients and you can't pronounce what they are, um, things like all these different gums that are in foods and these emulsifiers that are in foods like polysorbate, uh, artificial sweeteners, um, which are still very new to our food supply. Um, all of these really make me take a step back and wonder because we know specifically just going back to inflammatory bowel disease for a second or any autoimmune condition, we do know that there's some kind of an environmental trigger. Uh, We don't know what that is for most autoimmune conditions. We do for celiac, of course, that's gluten. Uh, But otherwise, we don't know what these triggers are. And and there's a very good chance, and a lot of very renowned scientists suspect that the environmental trigger could be in our diet. And it very likely could be one of these unrecognizable additives. 
And what, what about the role of pesticides? So I'm so curious about where these blue zones are. And I'm just wondering, in those particular areas, are people eating foods that don't have pesticides? I believe that they are. Now, I cannot say that 100%, but I believe that uh, a lot of this is, is locally grown food. So places like the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica and uh, Ikaria and Okinawa in Japan, and then even in the United States, in Southern California, there's a group of Seventh-day Adventists who are vegans. And uh, I, I would imagine that a lot of their food is really organic or at least, at the, uh, at least local Mm-hmm. And we're fortunate nowadays, for many of us, not all, that we have that accessible, that even if we're not going to buy organic, and sometimes you can find very clean foods that are not organic, they just don't have the name organic, and they're local. Exactly. And certainly if you have a farmer's market, I think buying locally at a farmer's market is one of the best things that people can do, uh, even if they don't say that they are organic. But to your point, not everybody has this. I mean, I, I don't want to sound elitist here either. I really, uh, I think if the if people were to even just eat more fruits and vegetables who are not eating any fruits and vegetables, I, I really will be less concerned about some of these these pesticides in the food. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about additives here that could contribute to an inflammatory response. Exactly. So if we shift gears now to a situation where someone has an inflammatory condition or symptoms, what are the differences that you would say, in addition to whole foods, what are some ways that what's healthy for that person would be different than for the general population? So specifically with inflammatory bowel disease, and uh, I think that we'll talk a little bit more about this later too, but often our patients will have to modify their diet a little bit for the amount of roughage or the fiber that's in these foods. Um, so that that is certainly one big area specifically for people with GI issues. And then there are, of course, personalized, uh, as we talked about in last segment, personalized sensitivities and intolerances that do need to be taken into account. So, and I do want to make it very clear here that we are we're really talking about dietary patterns. You know, we're looking at the whole picture. We are not um, pretending that we know exactly what everybody should be eating because we don't. We do not have the perfect medication for everybody. We do not have the perfect diet for everybody. And that's is, is certainly true with inflammatory bowel disease. I think patients wished that I would just tell them exactly what to eat. Uh, and, and I can't do that until I know how they're gut bacteria and their genetics interact with food, nobody can tell anyone exactly what they should be eating. So really, we're focused more so on the whole picture, on the dietary pattern. Which makes me think of probiotics. So I'm wondering, do you recommend probiotics? And also, there's so many different kinds of probiotics. So how do you help someone find the type that's best for them? So probiotics are definitely a very hot topic, I think, among everybody these days, but especially in the GI world. And in most cases, it's it's very much a guessing game. Um, a lot of our recommendations come from our clinical experience. But there are certain probiotics that have been studied for certain situations. So, for example, um, with ulcerative colitis or, or pouchitis for patients who might have had their colons removed and, and now have a J pouch, VSL number three is a, is a wonderful probiotic that has been uh, shown to have terrific benefits for those patients. 
And there are also probiotics like Fluoristor, which is a Saccharomyces boulardii, which has been studied to help prevent Clostridium difficile in people who are taking antibiotics. So in some cases, we we know what sort of probiotic at least to start off with. In others, uh, it, it really is the Wild West out there. And in addition to the, the probiotics that we can take in the supplement form, there are also wonderful ways that we can support healthy gut bacteria just with food alone. And, and that's one of the major ways really that what we eat contributes to inflammatory bowel disease uh, or m- maybe really can help fight it is that our gut bacteria directly affects our immune system and, and what we eat directly affects our gut bacteria. Diet's been shown to change strains of bacteria in as little as one to two days. What kind of foods would you recommend to have a healthy gut, to have more of that good bacteria? So as far as the foods that we should be eating more of, uh, certainly the fruits and the vegetables that have that wonderful soluble fiber also found in other plant foods like beans and legumes and whole grains. So when the bacteria in our large intestine feeds on this fiber, actually produces these really wonderful, beneficial anti-inflammatory byproducts, which can do wonderful things for the gut. So I certainly recommend, again, lots of plant foods. Um, Lots of our patients really like fermented foods too, specifically unpasteurized kimchi or sauerkraut. Uh, For people who can tolerate dairy, in many cases, the kefir or a really nice, clean uh, yogurt. And by clean, I mean one that's not loaded with added sugar uh, and added sugar that we should make a point there that here we talked about some of the foods that are really healthy for the gut microbiome, um, the foods that have been shown to not be as healthy to actually impair the integrity of the whole uh, community of bacteria uh, are, is sugar, uh, sugar and highly processed foods. So you offered one really wonderful example in the first segment of someone who got food sensitivity testing and changed his diet. And then he had, in his case, he had ulcerative colitis and he stopped bleeding. You mentioned, I'd love to hear another situation that came up. You had mentioned that there was someone you worked with who actually was able to get off meds. Sure. So, so the food sensitivity was one example and, and not everybody needs to do that. Um, and, uh, this particular patient who we had spoken about a little bit earlier, uh, she had a very clean diet to begin with, and, and she did not have a really severe case of ulcerative colitis. She had sort of a mild to moderate, and she was on a particular medication that she did not feel comfortable taking when she became pregnant. And she and her husband really wanted to start this family. And so she came to see me and said, look, I'll do anything you tell me. And you know, Hemda, we anytime we make a recommendation, three things are going to happen, right? There's, someone's going to get better, which is our goal. Someone's going to get worse, which obviously is not the goal, and nothing's going to happen, which, okay. Um, now, this particular patient, she, we tried something, and what, and what we did was we significantly uh, cleaned up her already healthy diet. Um, we put her on all organic. We made sure that we really tripled the amount of the fruits and the vegetables that she was eating. And I think we started off with a little bit lower fiber, just not to exacerbate her symptoms. And uh, there must have been something in some of those foods that she was eating, maybe the non-organic or whatever it was. And, and for her, she found 
her trigger in a way. Um, she was able to come off the medication and now she has a really healthy baby. And that was her goal. But I certainly too do not want anyone who's on a medication to feel like they're doing something wrong. And, and by no means am I anti-medication. Um, medications have helped so many of our patients and in many cases um, their their situations are very severe and they do need those meds. And in those circumstances, what nutrition and diet is really doing is it's optimizing their whole immune system in such a wonderful way that the medication can work better, that it can work as well as it possibly can. So it seems as though anecdotal accounts of what someone did and what the results were need to be taken with somewhat of a grain of salt, right? If you if you have a, a similar situation to someone else and you hear about something they did, it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to reflect your triggers, that's that's exactly right. I, there, as we just were mentioning even a little bit earlier, there's just not one specific diet for everybody. And I never want anyone to feel like they failed. You know, a lot of our patients do extremely well on something called a specific carbohydrate diet, which is an advertised diet for people with inflammatory bowel disease. It It's a very strict diet. It eliminates starchy foods and grains and some of our patients thrive and others don't and then they feel like well what did I do wrong and the truth is nothing um it we just don't know until we try but uh we certainly have more than enough information, both anecdotally and also in the literature, to support that overall healthy dietary pattern of real food. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of, there are a lot of common things actually that can work across the board. And then you hopefully get to the point where you can pinpoint better what's going to work better for a particular person. Right. So often our more just overall go-to approaches seem to work just fine. And we, we often start there. And then we do have these extra tools to personalize the diet. And I think one thing, I think this is a good time just to throw this out there, is that often people with inflammatory bowel disease, they in many cases have irritable bowel syndrome as well, or they might have other gastrointestinal issues. Uh, for example, they might have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And both irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, and, and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can cause their own gastrointestinal symptoms. And so it's really important for patients when they are symptomatic to have a good feeling of why they're symptomatic because we certainly don't want to go ahead and put somebody on a really severe medication for irritable bowel syndrome. Mm -hmm. So that requires the person to really pay attention because the idea is obviously you don't want to be on the wrong protocol. Right. So really paying attention to how they're feeling and, and paying really becoming their own advocate. I think it's so important for patients to be their own advocates, uh, especially as, as we get more and more specialized in both um, the medical field and, and including in the nutrition counseling. So they want to make sure that they know what part of their gut is affected. They want to make sure that uh, they have their inflammatory markers checked and that they're really talking to their doctor about uh, what sorts of signs they should be looking for. And what normally happens is that um, after a number of years, they, they get a good feel. And, uh, and I always tell people to listen to their bodies more than anything else because uh, people really know, tend, they, they, they learn their, really what their bodies are telling them and, and they know it better than anybody else. Right. So since this is also a mysterious type of experience, where you're really feeling out for triggers for particular people, it seems like an underlying message that you're offering here is, even if you think something is inconsequential, 
or not necessarily related, that it can be helpful to bring it up because there might be a connection. Exactly. And to maybe explore other tests that should be performed, that type of thing. And also food symptom diaries can be tremendously useful for identifying personalized uh, food triggers, um, especially when it comes to things like a lactose intolerance or if there's certain fats. Um, but I, I do recommend that uh, people do this with the help of a nutritionist because otherwise it is so frustrating and um, we don't expect patients to be their own detectives here. I appreciate also the example that you gave of someone who was looking to get pregnant because I would guess that that can be a very discouraging situation where where people are very concerned that something that's so important to their future might be impacted and or might conflict in some way with their health protocol. Yeah, absolutely. And just another reason where what they eat can just have such a profound effect on how they feel and, and now on their, their baby's health as well. As far as you're aware, was she able to stay off the meds? As far as I'm aware, last time I heard from her, she has a really healthy little girl and she's not currently on any medications. She's been in remission, I believe, ever since. So the idea is find those triggers and sometimes like inventions, they, you wind up discovering them by accident. Right. I'm going to say this really quickly and then we're going to go to commercial because it brings to mind the story of one of my former clients who had horrendous migraines to the point where it affected her career choices. And she went on a trip to China, and somehow during this time she was in China, she didn't have diet soda, and her migraines just disappeared. It's amazing, and we do see things like that happen all the time. So keep investigating. We're going to take two for a quick commercial. When we return, Colleen will focus on an important nutrient for people with IBD, something that she touched on in this segment, fiber. Stay with us to learn more. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. Are you a business leader or owner who's ready for a lifestyle change? If conditions in your company's environment or marketplace are reducing your quality of life, now might be a good time to develop an exit strategy. Creating a transition plan enables you to pace your need for change while celebrating an enriching career. Ensure that you exit on a high note by enlisting the expertise of Hemda Mizrahi. Learn more at lifeandcareerchoices.com. You are listening to Turn the Page with Hemda Mizrahi. Got a question or comment for the show today? Please call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to hosthemda at gmail.com. Now, back to Turn the Page. Welcome back. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, speaking with registered dietitian nutritionist Colleen Webb. Colleen told the encouraging story of a patient whose dietary changes enabled her to get off medications. Now we're going to talk about a nutrient that has important implications related to IBD, fiber. Colleen, what's so critical about fiber? 
I think Fiberhem does one of the least understood part of this whole nutrition approach to inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, fiber, often patients are told to go on a low fiber diet. Uh, excuse me, fiber is an undigested carbohydrate. And so our bodies do not have the tools that they need to break fiber down. Uh, we don't actually break fiber down any more than we chew it. And so the concern is that if you have an inflamed bowel, do you really want to take something like sandpaper and rub it all over the gut? And that sounds pretty painful, right? And in many cases, it is. Um, but I think, unfortunately, with fiber, why it's so, one of the reasons why it's so misunderstood is that often people are just given a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, and they are instructed to be on a low fiber diet for life. And that is not uh, at all what, is, what we are recommending. We have no proof that fiber causes flares or causes inflammatory bowel disease. In fact, studies have supported that people who consume more fiber are actually less likely to flare. So the big point here is that just because you're given a diagnosis of, of one of these inflammatory bowel disease, uh, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, does not mean that you need to be on a low-fiber diet forever. Mm. So you mentioned it doesn't mean that you need to be on a low-fiber diet forever. So if you have IBD, is it recommended to be on a low-fiber diet? So we always recommend that our patients eat a healthy diet, right? You know, 80, 85% of the time, right? Um, and, and a healthy diet defined as what we talked about in the last segment, which is mostly real healthy whole foods and not too much sugar or junk food. Um, the only difference when somebody is really symptomatic, uh, maybe when they're really inflamed, uh, perhaps they are at risk of obstructing. The difference is that we often will recommend a low fiber diet just during that time. And I don't even call it fiber anymore with my patients because I think that fiber is a little bit too misleading. I really like to use the word roughage. And that's because we can break down fiber outside of the body. So we, we I mentioned that we don't break it down any more than we chew it. So sure, if you eat a bunch of lettuce or corn or something, you don't chew it well. Uh, I mean, I hate to get graphic here, but, but no matter who you are, it's going to come out looking the exact same way. But we can break down fiber in other ways. So for example, Somebody could take a, some spinach or some blueberries and they could put them in a blender and they can make a, a beautiful and nutritious smoothie uh, that's very low roughage. Uh, same idea with soups. Maybe you have a lot of carrots, um, maybe some butternut squash, whatever it is, and you go ahead and put that in a pot and cook it and, and puree it. That is no longer high fiber, but it gets really confusing because if somebody were to go ahead and look at the back of a label on a nutrition label and they, let's say, picked up this pureed vegetable soup, it might say it has seven or eight grams of fiber and they're going to go, oh my gosh, I can't eat that. But meanwhile, it's not high roughage. That's not the type of fiber that we are at all concerned about. Mm-hmm. So it seems like you're really trying to help the body do less work in those situations where you have an inflammatory episode. Exactly. You're giving your bowel a little bit of a rest. You're not making it work so hard. And this recommendation that you gave, the example of creating a smoothie with spinach or creating a, a soup, is that something that you would recommend on a continuous basis or really more during those times where you have a particular episode? 
unless the person just loves pureed soups and <laughs> really well cooked vegetables. Um, I really that's only necessary when somebody is symptomatic, when they're really flaring, or when they are at risk of obstructing. Um, and and something I'll add to that too, uh, it's probably useful for people who don't chew their food. Um, you know, I, I think that we spend a lot of time telling people what they should be eating, but not nearly enough times talking about how they should be eating. And so before I ever have a patient transition from a low fiber to a high fiber diet, which should, by the way, be done very slowly and gradually, we make sure that they are chewing their food. Uh, because if they're chewing their food really well, then they're less likely to have a problem. And Hemda, that just reminds me of one of actually the first patients who I ever worked with. She had a very complicated history of Crohn's disease, uh, a number of surgeries, And I got a call from her from the hospital, and she had actually had an obstruction. So she had had a lot of scar tissue, and food can get stuck there. And so she had an obstruction. She actually perforated, which which is very dangerous. Unfortunately, she was okay. But when I went to the hospital to visit her, and of course I'm saying, oh my goodness, what what happened? What did you eat? And she's saying, you know what? It didn't have to do with anything I ate. It had to do with how I ate it. I ate it too fast. I didn't chew it. I talked the whole time, and I wasn't hydrated. Uh, so to answer your original question, um, do they have to be low fiber or low roughage forever? Absolutely not. Um, but if they cannot chew their food well and take their time, then they might just feel better with the softer foods. Do you have any recommendations on chewing? What are some guidelines you can give for how to chew well? So everyone has kind of a different preference here, but um, some of our patients, one way to slow them down. So if you can slow down, you're more likely to chew your food a little bit better. Um, So if you're right-handed, you could try eating with your left hand. If you're not very good at chopsticks, maybe you could try eating with more chopsticks. Uh, You could just make it a goal to take about five or so deep breaths in between each bite. Um, Also putting the fork down in between bites is really very helpful. As far as chewing goes, some people like to chew food a certain number of times. I usually recommend that people just try to chew until it's about the consistency of applesauce. Because if Mm. you can get it to the consistency of applesauce, you should be pretty safe. Mm -hmm. So it just involves a little bit more attentiveness. And, and hopefully I, you might enjoy your food more as well. Exactly. And I think something we can all benefit from, a little more mindful eating. Right. So we have the slowing it down and then chewing it to the consistency of applesauce. Right. It doesn't sound the most appealing, does it? <laughs> but, but in practice, it really, it really does work. So really just more so that mindful eating. And, and, and people start to get a good feel for what they can tolerate. And with the fiber, too, sometimes just a little bit is okay, whereas a lot might not be. So just really paying attention to the eating behavior and the portion sizes are, are all very helpful things that somebody can do. Mm-hmm. So some people might want to then cook their kale rather than have a raw kale salad. Yeah, so some other ways besides just smoothies and soups. So cooking certainly can help soften foods and kind of break down the fiber. And so can peeling fruits and vegetables. So, for example, let's say you take an apple and uh, you have that skin. That skin is usually that the roughage. So the skin is kind of that insoluble fiber, that roughage. You can imagine it might be a little bit more abrasive, a little bit harder to chew, whereas the inside of that apple is more your soluble fiber. And soluble fiber can actually be really soothing. It's not nearly as abrasive. Uh, I think one nice way to illustrate this is, let's say uh, maybe somebody has a family member who might have taken Metamucil, for example. Um, 
with Metamucil, which is a soluble fiber supplement, if they ever put that in water and they forget about it and they go to drink it 30 minutes later, they have a gel. And that that really illustrates what happens in the in the bowel as well. So sometimes the soluble fiber will actually be helpful for both people um, who are going to the bathroom too frequently and also people who aren't going enough. And it's usually that nice insides too of the fruits and the vegetables that tend to feed that bacteria in the large intestine uh, that promotes those wonderful anti-inflammatory byproducts, which can be so healthy for the colon. Um, so that's, again, just why I use the term roughage and not so much fiber. Um, Just another example besides the apple, things like avocados and bananas, you're you're just naturally not going to eat that skin. So those are really nice options for patients, even even when they've been prescribed a low fiber diet, cantaloupe and honeydew. So often... In case anyone out there is wondering why uh, they might have been told by their physician to avoid all fruits and vegetables, the reason that you're often told that is because of the fiber. Um, But as you can see here, that you can really make that fiber incredibly soft and not at all abrasive. And and we want you eating fruits and vegetables because... Fruits and vegetables have all kinds of, not just vitamins and minerals, but all kinds of phytochemicals that really help fight inflammation. And people who eat more vegetables live longer, healthier lives. So we need to work with you to, or you need to work with us and your, your healthcare provider to really figure out how you can still reap all of the fantastic benefits of these foods, despite maybe the, the fiber. Looking at then peeling fruits and vegetables can make a big difference in terms of being able to enjoy them and benefiting from all of the nutrients. Yeah, peeling can be really useful. Now, a lot of people might say, but that's where all the nutrients are. And there are certainly a lot of nutrients in those peels. Um, and that's where if you if you do make a smoothie, you certainly do not need to peel something before it goes into uh, a powerful blender because those blades will break things down, just like you don't need to cook things before they go in a blender. So some patients are told only eat cooked vegetables. And when I suggest smoothies, they start cooking all their vegetables before they go in the smoothies. And they're like, oh my goodness, that was terrible. But they, they don't you, you do not need to do that. Uh, the, the blender will take care of it. Aside from this example of peeling, do patients essentially need to look at nutrient labels in order to have a sense of how much insoluble and soluble fiber there is in what they're eating? I don't think they do. I think that you could drive yourself nuts. Um, and, and really, most labels won't even break out the soluble and the insoluble anyway. So uh, and if you're really eating a real healthy diet, you're not going to be eating too many things with labels anyhow. Um, but no, I, I wouldn't even bother because let's take lettuce, for example. You look at a bag of lettuce and the grams of fiber, uh, sometimes you'll just see one gram of fiber per serving. But for anyone out there who's really running to the bathroom frequently or has any kind of narrowing of their GI tract, I mean, they know that lettuce is not good for them. So if they, if you can chew your food until that consistency of applesauce, as we were talking about, you should be fine. And uh, as you pay more and more attention, you learn what foods are okay when you're on a low-fiber diet. Uh, it's really tough to chew celery until the consistency of applesauce or pineapple until the consistency of applesauce. So those would be best avoided on a low-fiber diet unless they were soft. Colleen, you mentioned in this example of the patient who wound up, unfortunately, in the hospital that she reflected she wasn't hydrated. 
So certainly hydration is so important. Now in her particular case, she really needed that fluid to help move that food through that very narrowed area. Um, so anybody with a history of obstructing, you know, fluids cannot overemphasize just how critical they are. But for just anybody with inflammatory bowel disease, I mean, in many cases, people are running to the bathroom, you know, 20 times a day. Um, I mean, fluids, hydration is really, really key. Now, when you're feeling okay, you know, usually water is just fine. Um, A nice uh, rule of thumb to determine how much water you might need is just to take your weight in pounds and divide that by two. So if you have a 100-pound person, divide it by two, that's 50 pounds, and then uh, switch that over to ounces. Um, then that would be about you know 50 ounces of water. It was, sometimes though, Hemda water is just not enough. And uh, if someone's really dehydrated, then they should consider making their own oral rehydration solution. Uh, one easy one is to just take a sports drink and mix it with water, about 50-50, and then add a little bit of salt. But certainly hydration is key. And uh, some signs of dehydration are just really feeling very fatigued and, uh, and often dark urine and uh, very lightheaded and not urinating. So many wonderful tactics. Thank you so much, Colleen. We learned about hydration and the importance of whole foods without additives and insoluble fiber and so many things that we can do as individuals to improve our health and to lessen the symptoms of IBD. Thanks, Hamda, for having me. Well, there's more. You can find up-to-date nutrition information on Colleen's blog, eatforyears.com, which has a special focus on gastrointestinal health. You can also sign up for Colleen's weekly nutrition newsletter through eatforyears.com and purchase a webinar she'll soon release about the relationship between nutrition and inflammatory bowel disease. If you're encouraged by this episode to dive into making important nutritional changes, which I hope you are, please visit Colleen's website, ColleenWebNutrition.com, that's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-W-E-B-B, Nutrition.com, to learn how you can work with her to develop a personalized nutrition plan. If you have unanswered questions about today's episode, please email them to me at hosthemda at gmail.com. We'll post responses through our social media sites, which you can access by following me on Twitter at Hemda Mizrahi and liking us on Facebook at Turn the Page Radio. Until next week, remember to make the grass greener where you are. I'm Hemda Mizrahi, inviting you to turn the page. Thank you for tuning in to our program. Turn the Page can be heard live every Friday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next week's show, enjoy your weekend and make one change in your life before then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. 
The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.